Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to John chapter 21. This morning we're going to cover verses 1 through 14 and what represents kind of the second to last uh, message from John's gospel. We've been in this gospel for a long time and we just have uh, one more week in it. We finished chapter 20 last week and as we kind of wrapped it up, it would, would be fair to assume that that would be the end of the book. In fact, John includes at the end of chapter 20 kind of a purpose statement summarizing the reason for which he wrote his letter. He also has at the end there kind of a closing thought. He tells us why he wrote the book, that he wrote the book so that we might believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that in believing we might have life. And then John says, Jesus did a lot of other miraculous things, but I decided not to include them in this book. He doesn't tell us why, but that seems to be the end or would be a fitting conclusion to the book. Sounds like the sort of place where he might uh, lay down his uh, pen, as it were, and say, the end. Uh, But there's one more chapter, the epilogue, as it were. So let's look at it uh, together this morning. Let me uh, read John chapter 21, verses 1 through 10. The word of the Lord reads this way. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know yet that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to handle it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Have you ever been so pumped, so excited about a party or a celebration that when it's over, you feel kind of inexplicably blah, maybe uh, unmotivated, maybe uh, disappointed, uh, maybe just a little little down. As I was a kid, I I remember on Christmas morning, you know, there's a ton of buildup to opening presents, and you look and you see under the tree the presents, and you wonder what's there for you, and there's all this excitement and anticipation And then when you open the presents, after it's all said and done, you have the gifts that are open in front of you, there's kind of a weird feeling of disappointment. Even if you got everything you asked for, there's still this feeling of melancholy that sets in. This is the way it would happen for me, and I would, even though I'd be grateful for what I received, I would kind of mope around the rest of the day thinking, okay, what do I do now? Well, the feast of the Passover has ended in Jerusalem, which is arguably the biggest celebration of the year, and the disciples of Jesus have made the trek back to Galilee from Jerusalem. Now, given the distance of this trip, it's about 125 kilometers, 
and the time it would take to walk that far on foot, and then coupled by the reality of all those same people, tens of thousands of people going in the same direction, thus slowing things down, the account that we just read about in John 21 probably took place at least two and a half weeks or so after Easter Sunday. So it's at least two and a half weeks, maybe three weeks or more after the resurrection. John doesn't tell us exactly. He just says in verse 1 that he says, after this, again, uh, very nondescript. And then he says, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after his resurrection. We looked at uh, the other two appearances last week and the week before. But this one is very different. It's not in the locked room. It's not in the middle of, of the city somewhere. It's not surrounded by the bustle of the crowd. This is actually out on a beach. This is out on the shore. And it's in, it's in the open. It's where seven of the disciples are gathered together. Peter is there, we're told. Uh, James and John, the, the so-called sons of Zebedee. Uh, Thomas, whom we discussed last week. Nathaniel, and then two other disciples who are, who are unnamed. And they're all out on the lake fishing, which is pretty fascinating, really, when you think about it. They'd just seen the risen Jesus. they just really experienced the, the, the seeing the greatest miracle that has ever taken place in the history of the world, and they just kind of go back to doing normal things. They'd seen a man, Jesus, risen from the dead just as he promised he would, and then they just kind of return to their normal lives. It's actually so surprising the way that they, were, that they would so soon be back to normalcy that many theologians have questioned over the years, what were these guys doing? What were they thinking? How could they do such a thing? Some scholars have actually even blasted the disciples uh, for so quickly going back to fishing. 19th century London pastor Edwin Hoskins calls what the disciples have done here complete apostasy. He says they've, in his, in his recollection, his, his estimation, they've abandoned the faith by just going back to routine. 20th century British professor and author C.K. Barrett calls what the disciples did here unthinkable. How could they do such a thing given what they had seen and experienced with and before Jesus? Now, I'm not so sure it's such a terrible or heinous thing. I tend to agree with Augustine who said that the Lord never forbade the disciples for, for earning a living at their craft. After all, uh, they had to eat and, and some of them had families to feed. Again, so it's a, two to three weeks after Jesus' resurrection. The disciples are not following Jesus. They're not out planting churches, at least at this point. They're fishing. And the reality is they're not doing too well. In fact, they've been at it all night and they haven't caught anything, not a single fish. And then they hear a voice from the shore, and they're only about 100 yards out. They don't know who it is. They can't see. They can only hear. They don't recognize that it's Jesus. But the voice tells them to take their net out of the water and to cast their net on the other side of the boat. Now, they have no idea who's telling them this, but they, they do it anyway. To me, this is one of the most mysterious parts of this. Maybe it's just... Uh, my own sinful heart, my own stubbornness. But if I'd been working all night at a profession that I had been successful at my whole adult life, and a stranger has the bright idea to, to make one small change, to cast the net eight feet over to the other side with the promise that there I'll find fish, I'm sure that I probably would have thought, why are you giving advice 
to me. Do you think that we've never done this before? Do you think that we're out here a bunch of idiots? When Janine and I first started dating, my family, uh, of course, loved her right away, and, and she loved my family also. And, you know, but there is that kind of awkward period where, where she's getting to know them, and, and they're getting to know her and her personality and idiosyncrasies and even kind of her, her family background. Well, one year, again, shortly after we started dating, uh, she was driving back to college from her house. I was at the same college, and, and my house happened to be right on the way there. It was, it was like three minutes uh, out of the way. And so she very kindly decided to stop over and, and say hello to my parents. I was already at school, uh, but she just wanted to stop and say hi. She did. She had a great time. Again, they enjoyed each other. And then she went out to go to school, and she tried to start her car, and nothing. Nothing happened. No noise. No engine turn, nothing. And since I was already back at school, she couldn't call me to say, hey, what should I do? And there were no cell phones at that time, so there was no way really to, to get a hold. She didn't know where I was exactly. So kind of uh, sheepishly, she went back. She knocked on the door. They'd already hugged and said goodbye and everything. And so she went back, and, and she said, I don't know what's going on, but, but my car won't start at all. I can't get anything to happen. So my stepdad said to her, uh, did you try turning the key? Now, Janine, again, they're just getting to know each other. She kept everything inside, I'm sure, but I'm sure, I'm sure she thought, oh, huh, is that how these big metal contraptions work? They take a key you have to turn? Now, we laugh about it now, and she and my stepdad get along famously, but that was a little frustrating. And I have to believe that there, were, there was some of that feeling with the disciples. Cast the net to the other side of the boat? You mean just a few feet over in this vast sea? But the seven disciples listen to this man's idea, and sure enough, they catch so many fish that the, that the net, they can't even lift the net up. And John, the author of this book, then realizes and says to Peter, it's the Lord. Well, Peter, who is half naked at the time, grabs his robe. He puts on his robe, and he decides to swim to the, uh, the shore, which is kind of an interesting approach. Normally, if you're going to jump in water, you don't add more clothing. You kind of take off whatever clothing you can. Um, but that's just Peter being Peter. And so the rest of the disciples, they decide, well, we're not, you know, we, we follow Peter. He's got this big personality, but we're not going to do that. And so they kind of row the, west of the, the rest of the way there while Peter uh, swims. And they get there, and they drag the net full of fish onto the shore. Now, we have to ask, as we do with any passage of Scripture. Not only how does this fit within the big story, the meta-narrative of the Bible, but why was this particular section included? I mean, John's already said to us that Jesus did many miracles that were not included, that he didn't include. Why would he include this one? What does he mean for us to learn? And I think it's this, at least in part. I think the reason he includes this is to illustrate the disciples' complete inability to actually do the task that Jesus had assigned to them, that is, to be fishers of men, and at the same time to showcase Jesus' power to accomplish the task, even though he was not with them in the boat. Here's our first point this morning. Though unseen, Jesus is presently advancing his kingdom through our efforts, and he will bring many others into the fold. Even though we can't see him right now, we can't touch him physically, we're not with him physically, 
Jesus is still, at this very moment, he is advancing his kingdom, bringing other, other people into the fold through our efforts. You know, there are plenty of areas in life where if you really just bear down and concentrate and try hard and focus your attention, uh, you will see results. There are some things in life where greater effort and concentration basically always yield some kind of result. If you're digging a ditch or you're cleaning the house or you are uh, lifting weights and you say, I'm going to pour every ounce of energy into, uh, into this project. I'm going to focus. I'm going to push, push away distractions. I'm going to focus on this. You will see some results. At the end of the day, the ditch will be deeper the house will be cleaner, and your body will be more muscular. But in the spiritual realm, that's not how it works. More effort doesn't necessarily guarantee more results. Because we're actually attempting to do something, that is, to be fishers of men, to catch people spiritually. We're, we're attempting to do something that we have zero power actually to carry out. Being fishers of men is a calling that requires supernatural power. It means awakening dead people to a living faith in Jesus. It means transferring people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. It means enabling people to see God's holiness, their sinfulness, and then to cry out to Jesus Christ in faith. We can't do any of those things. Now, of course, the point is not that we should stop fishing, so to speak. We may actually need to do more fishing. We may need to tell more people about Jesus. But what Jesus is showing the disciples here, and us by extension, is you can try any strategy you want, but only I can fill the nets. Only I can make disciples. Only I can give spiritual life to those who are dead. But I will fill the nets. This is meant to drive us to, to greater dependence on Jesus in our disciple-making efforts. The scene is actually very similar to another, another event uh, involving fish, and that is the feeding of the 5,000 we see recorded in the other Gospels. And what happens is Jesus is on his ministry, he, he's, he's teaching, and people are following him, and he's sort of cultivating this uh, rock star status, and everybody wants to be around Jesus while they're following him. And, and they've been following all day. They get to this point where it's, it's getting dark. It's the end of the day. And there are some 15,000 people there, including women and children. And they're getting hungry. They're, they're ready to eat. They've been doing a lot of walking and a lot of listening. And they're ready to eat. And so the disciples, are, they start to kind of freak out. Like, what are we going to do here? They're, it wasn't the sort of place where you could just go and order a pizza or a bunch of pizzas for people. You, you had to go to a neighboring town. And that could be miles away. So the disciples are starting to panic. They say to Jesus, hey, have you, have you seen all the people that are around here? What are we going to do with all these people? How are we going to feed them? And Jesus says something pretty incredible. Jesus makes this stunning statement in response to the disciples' fear. He says to them, you feed them. They ask Jesus, hey, will you tell people to go somewhere else? And Jesus says, no, they don't have to go anywhere. You feed them. Now, this would be funny if there weren't 15,000 people, hungry people, staring down the disciples. What Jesus asks is outrageous. How are they going to feed all these people? 
disciples say, well, we've got a few fish and a few loaves of bread, but that's impossible. That's not going to work. And Jesus says, exactly, bring them to me. Here's a paradigm that we can very easily get behind. You put in the effort, you get the works. You get the results, rather. But that's not the way that it works in God's economy. It's more like this. We cast the seed. We kick away the rocks. We till up the dirt. But only God can make things come to life. Only God can make things grow. So, yeah, we do move the rocks, and we do plant the seed, and we do stir up the dirt. We rake the ground, but then we plead with God to do the miraculous work that only he can do in the hearts and souls of our children, in the lives of our neighbors, in the communities that we live in and we work in. Because think about what we're actually trying to accomplish. We're talking about the salvation of the people we love. We're talking about the planting of new churches, gospel-centered churches. We're talking about providing for the poor. We're talking about providing water for the thirsty, both spiritually and literally. We're talking about providing or, or making way for the honor and the freedom of those who are oppressed. We're talking about entire villages and people groups experiencing the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. We can't make any of those dreams a reality. But what we can't do, God will do. He will use our feeble efforts, the nets that we so clumsily cast, and I'm talking about the way that we cast the seed, the way that we share the gospel. He will use our efforts, our gospel conversations, and He will capture fish with those nets. He will bring people to saving faith for His glory. Jesus Christ is advancing His kingdom, and He has incredibly chosen us to be part of it. He's chosen to do so through us. I love what Jesus says in verse 10. He says, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Now, remember, the disciples, they didn't do anything. They fished for hours. Complete futility. They they came up with nothing. They spent all night. They come up with no fish until Jesus intervened. But Jesus reminds them that he's actually using them. Bring the fish that you caught, he says. They do have a role in this. He has the power to save. He will save, but he will use them and us to catch those fish. Now, you may feel like when it comes to your own son, your daughter, maybe your dad, maybe your mom, maybe your neighbor, you may feel like that you've been talking to them and praying for them for months, for years, maybe even for decades, and you just feel like this is an absolute waste of time. I don't see any results at all. But we don't know what God is doing. We don't know how God is working. Behind the scenes, He is a million steps ahead of us, and He is bringing to fruition His wonderful, beautiful, infinitely wise plan. And He's doing that through our prayers, through our dependence. Now look at the rest of this passage, verses 11 through 14. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples 
after he was raised from the dead. After they emerged from the water, Peter after swimming there and, and the disciples after rowing to the shore, they see that Jesus has a charcoal fire going. He's made breakfast for them. And he says to them, bring me some of the fresh stuff that you just caught and I'll put it on the grill. And John tells us that the net was filled with fish. In fact, he actually gives us the exact number. There were 153 fish in this net and the net did not break. Now, should we make anything of the number 153 um, or the fact that that John exercises such precision? Personally, I'm not sure. I don't think so. Uh, Unlike Mark, John is given to uh, greater uh, precision, more detail. Some, some argue that it's silly to read anything to the number 153. And as you might imagine, some have all kinds of formula for how uh, this number represents the Trinity and all kinds of different things. Um, some think that it's, it's perverse to make anything of the number of 153. Some say that we must uh, recognize what's going on here. I'm not exactly sure, but what I do think is important, and it's very significant actually, is the fact that the net doesn't break. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, there's a similar thing that happens where Jesus sort of coaches the disciples up, and at, their, at Jesus' instruction, they catch all these fish, and the net breaks. Here, though, in the context of Jesus' disciple-making, disciple-making mission his sending out of the, the, 12, the, the disciples, the 11 and, and more. Remember we saw just a few weeks ago uh, where Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. In the context of this multiplying movement, the disciples catch a full net of fish and the net holds strong. Not a single fish falls to the ground, lands in the sand, passes through the net. Here's what I think John is getting at, and this is our second point this morning. The gospel net will never break. Not a single one of those whom God has chosen will fall through or be lost. Now, how comforting is that? Not just to know that that salvation belongs to the Lord in the sense that He is the one who quickens the dead heart and He is the one who regenerates and He is the one who justifies and adopts. All of those things are wonderfully true, And not only is God in the business of making disciples, not only is God in the business of planting new churches and raising up new leaders, but he chooses and brings to himself those he never loses. The beginning of our salvation is God's work, and so is the completion of our salvation. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he's constantly pointing to our inability as his followers, our inability to save anyone our inability to save ourselves, and even our inability to manufacture our own spiritual growth. We know that our justification, of course, belongs to the Lord, and it's a work of God. It's, it's, it's monergistic. It's the work of one. But even our sanctification is God's work. Our progress in Christ is not something that happens by our hard work, but by the Spirit of God at work in us. And I think there's a tendency, and I see this all the time, among Christians to obsess about our performance, and especially our spiritual performance. How am I doing in this area? How have I grown in this area over the last weeks and months? How, have I, how am I getting better at putting off this sin? How, have I, how am I improving in this area? And I think these are... They're okay questions to ask every once in a while. 
And perhaps they should be asked every so often. But they tend to lead to discouragement, don't they? Because the reality is we don't normally make tremendous measurable strides very often or certainly over short periods of time. We demonstrate our selfishness every day. We demonstrate every day all the ways that we've fallen short of God's perfect holy standard, the law. We demonstrate every day the ways that we love other things more than we love God. The way we get excited about other things more than we get excited about God's salvation. And we give in to temptation all the time. And that can be very frustrating. That can be very uh, disheartening. Well, sanctification is a bit like a hurdler, one who you know, runs the hurdles and, and, and maybe trips over a hurdle and falls over a hurdle and kicks over a hurdle, but still is moving forward slowly, sometimes uh, not winning the race as it would appear. I know some of you had the opportunity to dial into the, the Gospel Coalition an, annual conference, which happened just recently, and this is a conference that happens every other year that I've uh, made a point really to go to for almost every time for the last 20 years. I've missed a few, but it's a, it's a great conference, uh, very encouraging for pastors, ministry leaders, and really period people in general. And I know there are a few folks at our church who were planning to go um, to Louisville, but it got canceled, and so they just dialed in. Well, you may have heard uh, Kevin DeYoung say in one of his messages, the godlier you become, the less godly you feel. In other words, the more that you think, you know, man, I've really got this thing licked. I'm doing so much better than my neighbor. I feel like I'm really able to put off temptation. I'm just really living a righteous life. The more you're probably not nearly as mature, not growing nearly to, it, to the extent that you think you are. But the more that you realize, recognize your need for grace more and more every day, the more that you realize, you know, I'm really not that godly. I'm sinful. My, my motivations are perverse. My thoughts are wicked. I'm falling to temptation. I'm selfish and self-centered and impatient. The more that we, we recognize those things, the more godly we may be becoming. Now, I'd like to add to this. this is not Kevin saying this, but I'd like to add to to that this, the more you obsess about your personal holiness, the less holy you will become. The more that you're constantly focusing on your progress and your holiness and your righteousness and your ability to put away sin, all those things, actually, paradoxically, mysteriously, the less holy you will become. We get so disheartened when we focus on our failures. Now, a better approach, and I would say a biblical approach, is to take our eyes off of our ups and our downs, our successes and our failures, and focus instead on the finished work of Jesus. In a sermon that he preached in 1922 to the chapel at Princeton Theological Seminary, the so-called uh, father of Reformed biblical theology, Gerhardus Voss, wrote this, it is God's inalienable, inalienable right as God to impress His character upon us, to make and keep us reflectors of His infinite glory. See, what happens is God will mold, He will shape us into the image of His Son. Now, it's not to say that we just sort of kick back and do nothing. 
But we must continually recognize, A, that God is the one doing the work, and B, the more that we focus on the righteousness of Jesus, the righteousness that is ours by faith and not by earning, the more humble we become, the more grateful for God's salvation, the more dependent upon grace, the more loving with our neighbor, the more patient with those who can annoy us, whatever it is, the more we grow. Uh, John Bunyan, I'm sure you've probably heard of him as the author uh, of Pilgrim's Progress, which is a terrific read. I actually like better his book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, which is less, I guess, allegorical and more straightforward. But John Bunyan would get so frustrated by his own lack of spiritual progress, and he would find himself actually fixating on this idea that he's not grown nearly the way that he wished he would have. He's just not made the strides that he so desperately wants to, to make, and he becomes so discouraged by that. But in his book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, he describes the moment where he was enabled by the Spirit of God to, to finally change his focus and what it actually entailed, what it meant for him. He says this, One day as I was passing into the field, and that too with some dashes on my soul, fearing lest all was still not right, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought, well, that I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that whatever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness. For that was just in front of him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And listen to how he responds then. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. John Bunyan understood something so beautiful, the recognition of our inadequacies and our shortcomings and our failures should not cause us to uh, despair, but drive us to Jesus. The best efforts we muster on our own to help ourselves or anyone else are going to be futile, completely futile. Our only hope is in the power and the provision of another. So John, back to John the Evangelist, he tells us how many fish were there, that none fell through the net, and then, and then that they enjoyed fish together that Jesus uh, cooked on the charcoal, and they ate. Now, I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago, we talked for just a couple minutes, a few minutes, on, on what this glorified body of Jesus was like and, and what it meant to us, and had planned on talking about it last week, but wanted to wait until this morning, so we had a little more data, as it were. Now, we don't, know, we don't know a ton about Jesus' glorified body, but we do know a few things. We do know that it's a real, physical body. As we just saw, Jesus made breakfast for his friends, and, and another gospel writer tells us that he ate with them. Well, a ghost doesn't eat fish or anything else for that matter. We also know that there's continuity and discontinuity between the pre-resurrected and the post-resurrected Jesus or body. Not Jesus, but his body. Jesus looked the same, but he was decidedly different. 
He was recognizable as Jesus. He had the scars and invited his friends to see them and to touch them. But there was a clarity, there was a brightness, there was a radiance, we might say, that was different because now his body was a glorified one. The disciples knew it was him. We're told in in verse 12 they knew it was him, but none dared ask him, is it really you? That speaks to the, both to the gruesome nature of the crucifixion, but also to the brightness and the clarity of Jesus' now glorified body. And Jesus' physical glorified body that the, the disciples laid eyes on, it didn't age either. In fact, it has never aged, even now. Even now, God the Son, Jesus Christ, sits at the right hand of the Father in that same glorified body. The Apostle Paul writes this in Colossians 2 after Jesus had ascended back to the Father. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, dwells is in the present active tense. This very moment, Jesus is interceding for us while seated at God's right hand as the glorified God-man in a body that won't age, that will never be infected or affected by disease, illness, virus, or fatigue, because there is no sin. We also know about Jesus' glorified body that it seemed to be free from the constraints of physical matter. Now, John never tells us directly, but he makes the point on two different occasions to say that the doors were locked, the disciples were in a room with the doors locked, and Jesus just appears to them. Now, what was going on there? Was he employing... uh, interdimensional travel like we kind of see in the TV show Stranger Things? Did he simply cleverly unlock the door? Maybe he didn't need a key. He just was able to unlock the door without a key. Well, it doesn't seem like that's what happened since John makes such a point to mention how he appeared in this miraculous way. We might say that Jesus moved with the speed of thought. He was unencumbered by physical and material restraints. Now, what all this means for us is, since Jesus is the first fruit of those who have died and risen from the dead, we can expect glorified bodies as well. In fact, we're promised glorified bodies in 1 Corinthians 15, like Jesus' glorified body. And our glorified bodies will enjoy the same continuity and discontinuity. In many ways, you will look a lot like you look now. You'll be recognizable as you, as you look because of how you look before. Now, you probably will look something like you did when you were 21 or some, some young, vibrant, youthful, energetic age. It will still be you. Otherwise, we wouldn't receive a resurrected body but a new body. Fourth century church father Gregory of Nyssa made the point that in our resurrection, every identical individual particle which composes our bodies at death must return to us, else our resurrection would, be, would instead be the creation of a new man. Gregory contended that the same man is to return to himself down to every single atom of his elements. Now, I'm not sure about that. He may be on to something. But if you're in Christ, your new body will be much like your old body, only flawless. And I'm not saying your current body is flawed. 
But what I'm saying is it won't be hampered by sin. It won't have the same limitations. You will look like you. You will resemble you. People will know you as you. But it will be different. Your body will shine with radiance, free of imperfections, perfectly ageless and full of energy. Again, think of it like being 21 years old forever or whatever you see as that sort of optimal age with no restrictions on where you can go and no trouble getting there, where there will be no jealousy or insecurity about how you look or anyone else looks, no toxic emotions like envy or self-loathing. Those emotions won't even exist because sin will not be present. That's a beautiful thought, isn't it? A real perfect, ageless, physical body. And you will think clearly all the time. You won't ever forget your keys. You won't ever get lost. You won't ever argue over directions or get tired exploring or fall asleep during a sermon. You will think clearly and your mind will be sharp. Now here's our final point this morning. The promise of eternal life is the promise of a real, physical, bodily existence in a place where endless exploration and undiminished delight last forever. It's the promise of a real, physical, bodily existence where endless exploration and undiminished delight go on forever. Now, this is something to look forward to, isn't it? This is yet another angle. We talk about this. This is how we look at the gospel as a diamond from different angles, different perspectives, and we see different aspects of its beauty. This is another angle to look at the gospel from. We see the beauty of God's restoration of all things. Yes, God is in the business of saving souls, making people alive spiritually, but that's not all He's doing. He's also restoring everything He's made. As the old uh, Reformed theologian Al Walter said, God doesn't make junk, and He doesn't junk what He's made. God is going to restore everything that's wrong with this world. He is making all things new. When we trust in Jesus, not only do we get the fullest life, reconciliation with God, the forgiveness of sins, but we also have the promise of an incredible, real, physical future with Jesus and all the people that we love that have died before us who were in Christ. People we're going to recognize. People we're going to be able to run up to and hug. People we won't have to do the elbow bump thing with. People we can spend time with and never worry about them coughing or sharing a virus. People that we know, love, recognize, and can spend eternity with. I don't know about you, but this actually matters to me. Here at Capshaw, we're committed to uh, church planting. and We believe that the Great Commission is actually the call to plant churches. Not just to win people, but to to win people and to provide a church for them. Churches that are Christ-centered, churches that are gospel-centered, churches where the good news of Jesus Christ is proclaimed week after week. And, and we believe, and of course research has shown, that this is the, the most effective way to make disciples who make disciples by church planning. So we're committed to that. In fact, we're so committed that we are in the process now of, of locking arms with a, a network called Acts 29, which is a church planting network that has is, that is, uh, helped churches plant other churches in all parts of the world. 
all around our country and all over the world. And um, this is a, you know, I don't want you to, to be afraid or to worry. This is, a, this is an 18-month, two-year process at least. But one of the things that I've had to do uh, to get us ready is as the senior pastor is I've had to go through the Acts 29 assessment process, which has been hours and hours of writing answers to questions about the nature and extent of the atonement and, and different theological questions and different counseling questions. And one of the things that I did most recently as I'm kind of on the tail end of this is I took two personality tests. And, uh, one of the, and you know how these things are. You take a personality test and, and what it reveals, you say, oh, that's, that's so interesting and fascinating. That's, that's just like me. Now, you might find some areas that you disagree, but, but it's amazing how, how much after you take these long tests they kind of capture the essence of who you are. And one of the things that I was told is I just finished up one. It said, my, I get this report. It said, you're very future-oriented. Um, you must remain stimulated intellectually and emotionally and relationally, or you get bored very easily. Now, this is true about me. This is very true about my, my personality. And one of the things that I've realized about getting bored easily is when I think about the way people talk about heaven, if I can be so honest with you, sometimes it bores me. Being in a, a, an everlasting worship service, I'm sure that's probably because my heart is unglorified, it's still sin-cursed, but sort of floating around doing these sort of ethereal, nebulous, mysterious things. But when I think about living on a new earth that's, that's led by, ruled by the righteous Jesus, Righteous in all his ways, righteous in all his, his rulings, where Jesus is there and I have a real, physical, glorified body and I'm doing earthly things, that actually excites me. See, we talk about God's salvation. Yeah, we, we get, we're reconciled to God. We are made right before God. We've, we receive instantly the forgiveness of our sins, past, present, and future. But we also have this incredible hope for all eternity that we will be united with Christ, we will be with Christ, and of course we'll be worshiping Him. But we'll be doing all these amazing earthly things as part of our inheritance, as part of what is now given to us, credited to us by Jesus. And of course, it's all because of His grace. It's all because of His mercy. The mercy that God showed to us in, in sending His Son to die for those who are broken, sinful people. And the mercy that will continue to follow us all the days of our lives because we are in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your loving kindness, for your grace, for your mercy, for your goodness. And help us to be able to sing together with the psalmist in praise to you. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives the same goodness and grace and mercy that you extended toward us in making us your very own children, making us alive by faith, adopting us into your family, and preparing for us this incredible, glorious, eternal future where we will be with the Lord Jesus forever. Comfort our hearts this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.